Welcome to the Ancestral Kitchen Podcast with Allison, a European town dweller in central Italy, and Andrea living on a newly created family farm in Northwest Washington State, USA. Pull up a chair at the table and join us as we talk about eating, cooking, and living with ancient ancestral food wisdom in a modern world kitchen. Good morning, Allison. <laughs> hey, good afternoon. All of a sudden, Almost good I, evening. I couldn't remember if I was in opening this up or not. <laughs> Nor could I. I was too busy staring at my device thinking, is it working? Is it not working? Okay, see, thought, oh, now I said anything. For... Is it working? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's working. Okay, it's good. Working. I hope so. Well, well, well. Hello, hello. And welcome back hello. to the Ancestral Kitchen Podcast. Okay, um, yes. Allison, before we start, mm. let's say thank you to our newest patron yes exactly kathy kathy from home spun seasonal living that's what her website's called and she's um on ig as that tag as well mm-hmm. who joined us um at the end of last month um who's in the states um along with you and who's yeah, it's got a wealth of experience and knowledge and who's told me she's smitten with a podcast, which made me smile. It's such a lovely word and such a lovely thought that someone likes listening to us. So welcome, Kathy. Thank you very much for supporting us. We really appreciate it a, and it helps. She has a beautiful Instagram feed. I love seeing, I followed mm. her because I wanted to see her stuff pop up in my feed and it's so cool, the things she's doing. Yeah. And she's in a similar climate to mine. So I'm going to be able oh. to learn a lot from what she's doing. Oh, that's good. That's good. I don't know if we've talked about Rebecca on the oh, um, yes. main feed as well, the patron before Kathy. She's mm-hmm. in a completely different part of the world, Australia. Yeah. And maybe we mentioned her before. She came on board just before last year closed. I'm not sure whether we said hello to her on the main podcast, but hello if we didn't, Rebecca, um, in Australia. And yeah, thanks to you as well. Thank you to all of the patrons who continue to support us um, as we carry on putting out episodes and doing research and finding wonderful stuff to talk about. We really appreciate it. Every day, I feel like I'm learning something new that is impressing upon me even more the importance of everything that we're talking about and all the thousand sort of attached subjects that go along with ancestral food. And it every time it makes me again, grateful for the patrons who also see that and who are making it possible for us to talk about this and sponsoring this podcast out into the world. Yeah. Thank you. And keeping us ad free. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So Thank you. Um, before we start talking about food, let's talk about some food. So, Alex, <laughs> what did you have for lunch? Or have you had dinner? For I'm lunch, trying to remember yeah. what time it is for you. Yeah, no, I haven't had dinner. Um, okay. I will be having dinner after we've recorded. Slightly different um, recording time I, for us. Yeah, I had lunch, which seems like a long time ago now. But um, I had uh, pulses, split peas. I've been having lentils quite a lot recently, which people, I know people have heard on the podcast and some people have cooked them the way I do, which is really nice. Um, But I had split peas today that when I went to buy some more lentils from the bulk store, the lentils were substantially more expensive than the split peas. 
So I went with the split peas. Um, both of the choices have the holes, the shells taken off because we always find those the hardest to digest. So I try to go for um, pulses that have already had those shells taken off. So split peas, which I cooked in my usual kind of spicy way with oil in the bottom of the pan. And then I put in nigella and turmeric. I was kind of in a nigella and turmeric mood and put the um, onion in, red onion, and two whopping cloves of garlic, really big, and then um, poured the split peas in, stirred them around, and then I got my swats, which is the liquid left over from the oat fermentation called suens that I do, and I put in um, probably three quarters of the liquid I used was that liquid, and then a little bit of water, cooked them for around two and a half hours, something like that. Nice. And we had those with um, broccoli and Brussels from the local market. And then we had a bread which is um, was made yesterday with leftover rye grains from the ancestral ale that I make. So it was um, rye grains which had been in a ferment making our ale for two days. Ooh, yum. But I mixed it with... Um, spelt that Rob ground on our hand crank grinder. So it was quite um, coarse. Mm -hmm. Our grinder isn't an electric one, so it doesn't grind finely like, you know, some of the electric grinders do. And I decided just to throw some more things in there. And it, it when I was eating it today, I thought about the Ancestral Kitchen Challenge, the, the one that is find a bread that works for you and your family. Right. And it, it seemed to be... Uh, an example of that because I also threw in some linseed um, because I like linseed in bread and I thought it would help bind it and then I had some leftover porridge that I'd had been in the fridge fermenting for a week I'd cooked it but I cooked a lot mm -hmm. and I just put some of that in it as well Ooh. and you know it's not it didn't come out looking like a bread that you know was from a book with a you know really thick brown crust that cracked wow. and you know big air bubbles in it it just just looked like a nice bread. It smelled wonderful. Mm -hmm. But it um, it didn't have sourdough starter in it because it used the yeasts from the beer to rise. But it smelled, kind of had a, a smell a bit like the beer, which was nice. Oh, that is nice. And it just had a bit of everything in. And it was dense and really nutritious. And it obviously it's a circular thing because I'm reusing the grains. And it feels like... It's a bread that works for our family. You know, it uses up mm -hmm. that rye grain. It it has a spelt grain in it that's coarsely ground, and it has some leftover breakfast in. And I feel like, you know, everyone, everyone who wants to aesthetically look good, is telling us we have to have our breads looking a certain way. And right. no, it's rubbish. We just need to have a bread that works for us, like that um, prompt <laughs> in yes. the ancestral kitchen challenge says. So. That was our bread. I spread it with lard, which we rendered. And then we had some of the beer, oh, which was really it. nice. I feel like so. I'm just sitting here thinking about all the things I've been reading over the past week in my mind. I've been reading Katie Bowman and Chewing the Fat. Mm. Oh, okay. You did. I've got a little one sitting on my lap. <laughs> Hello. Um, so I'm just thinking about how if the bread you ate that that loaf you just described was you know the mm -hmm. common one in the region and everybody liked it then when you transitioned into industrial agriculture and then into industrial food manufacturing how easily we would 
manufacture, oh, let's, let's make the flavor yeah. of the beer and the smell. And, and by, like we talked about in the bread episode, after a while, it would be so distant in terms of generations that we wouldn't even actually remember what it smelled like originally or tasted yeah. like. And maybe great grandma would say, Puh, that's not the right thing. It doesn't smell right. It doesn't taste mm-hmm. right. But we would say, why are you talking about grandma? It's fine. You know? And yeah. um, Katie Bowman's book has me thinking about that in what she calls nutritional movement ways too, where, you know, you, you would probably have been kneeling at a stone grinder grinding yeah. for a very long time. And Rob maybe would have been walking miles and miles to gather the grain. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, Gabriel probably would have been sitting on the floor picking out bugs and husks yeah. and stones and yeah. things for you, you know, and then you would have been throwing grain up in the air and, you know, lots, lots and lots of movements. And then we'll remove you from that environment and we'll create an industrial version where we'll say, mm-hmm. turn on this video and then turn now, stand now, sit now, turn now, stand, you know, mm-hmm. and create our own manufactured movements. Um, I don't yeah, know. I totally just, agree. And thinking, both thinking. of those books together are an interesting parallel because true, true. it seems like a lot of those women in their 90s were extraordinarily healthy compared to and fit. Um, yeah. people that I know in my, yeah. you know, people in my kind of tradition that are in their 90s. And it seemed to me quite obvious from Karima Moyanoki's book we're talking about that um, they'd worked in the fields all their life yes you know yeah. right up, you know before until this the 70s they were working it just to live and you know they were sleeping in in cold barns but they were out there all the time and then since then they've all got autos you know they've all got gardens and right. they're all growing their own produce still and it's that movement which as Katie Bowman explains in, in her books it is normal that's what we grew up doing you know it's what we're capable we, of whether you know before agriculture we were out running and walking to track animals we were out foraging and hunting bending down and doing this movement it's what we can do and when we exploit our bodies to their fullest to do that that pays us back and you know obviously life was hard for the women in Karima's book you know they didn't have enough food the majority of them of them but still working with what we're intended to do as humans rather than willfully ignoring it and doing something that is sitting at a desk is is such a benefit to us even if we don't do it all the time if we can bring it into our lives yeah yeah and it's she's really had me thinking just because she's talking about all the movements and things and so it's making me think about how an ancestral food lifestyle will start with Mm. oh wait I'm supposed to be eating lard not margarine. And then it will eventually move to, um, you know, either Allison hiking (laughs) to a farm to get the lard or, you know, going outside every single day and feeding your pig and then using your strength Mm -hmm. to hoist it and, and, um, you know, shave it and prepare it and stir the lard. And, you know, so, so bringing back, not just the ancestral food itself, but the actual ancestral movements involved in procuring and gathering and preparing the food, I think is going to be pretty critical because you can't just, you can't just sit and eat (laughs) buckets of lard, obviously, and not do a little, you know, hunting and gathering to counter it. Yeah. Completely. Are you reading Move Your DNA, Katie's book? 
Which I think that's reading? the one I'm on right now. I have three of her books. Yeah. Um, but no, I think that is the one I'm on. So Naomi introduced I like me to her, who we oh, interviewed good. for the Slovakian food. She introduced me to Katie Bowman originally. What I oh, find yeah, quite interesting that. is that some of us have kind of historic problems with our bodies based on the way we've lived in the past or maybe I'm just talk about let's just talk about me shall we because I can't talk for everyone <laughs> but I know people have other people have talked to me about it in that I'm hypermobile so my joints move around more than most because I have a kind of an issue with my collagen uh, in my ligaments and because of that right. and the interaction of how I emotionally dealt with stuff when I was a kid and how I held my body it has meant that I've got 40 years of using my body in an incorrect way to try to tease out right. and change and work with the emotions that are so deeply embedded in my tissues so mm -hmm. when I react to any you know negative thing that happens in the day I don't react and push my body back into that position. And so it's, for me, it's interesting the kind of the line between, well, this is what I can actually do and how can I move that forward gently without hurting myself in the process? And because if I just um, did something like, you know, carrying a great big heavy thing, then mm -hmm. I'd hurt myself quite badly right, and I wouldn't right. recover. But there are things that I can do that will move me into a space where my body's changing and that line is is delicate and for people who I think have bodies that aren't historically so reliable it's it's dangerous sometimes it's a scary line because if you hurt yourself it really hurts yeah that um, that's definitely an important thing I think both with ancestral food and with I'll just call it ancestral movement for lack of a better term which is that if you make the all or nothing switch all of a sudden so you go from a completely mm -hmm industrial lifestyle to you know sedentary industrial all the things and then just jump straight over it it would be a shock <laughs> to the system yeah. maybe it's not like, all positive like you said it's the same with food if you suddenly change and take all the processed food out of your body or you you suddenly decide to change then you're going to have a detox right so it, it's kind right. of like you said it's it, it, I find that interesting. But it's kind of crazy really thinking that you there. had um, hypermobility and you were a raw vegan on top of that. Mm. Um, yeah. That seems like a bad combo. <laughs> yeah. Well, we learn, don't we, you know, and there were good things about being raw vegan of for course, a short period of, of time for me. Yeah. Um, and that certainly that time accelerated my learning about food for sure. Um, you know, we... We, we each have our journeys, don't we? And every part of them is kind of part of the whole where we where we end up in the present. So yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, I I look back at all the dietary choices that I made, and some of them weren't good in terms of they were overly restrictive and things like that. And I I don't. Mm, yes, it would be nice to have always made the perfect choices, but at the same time, I can't totally say that I regret it because I've yeah. practically learned a lot from yeah. doing that. Yeah. I've learned what literally does not work in the long term. <laughs> yeah. I think sometimes that's the only way you can learn properly, you know. Oh, well, me I went for and I sure. worked for Microsoft <laughs> and and I and I had lots of money and I had a BMW and I had a life where I could go on holiday and it was only through doing that 
that I was able to learn that I so did not want that and it, mm-hmm. it was not for mm-hmm. me. And and I've always been the sort of person that throws myself into these things and then goes, hang on a minute, I've learned from that. Yeah. Now I'll just make this radical shift over in mm-hmm. this direction off to the left, shall I? <laughs> yeah, that's you. <laughs> sometimes looks a bit funny to the outsider or, or frustrating to, to someone who's not who's not inclined to do that in their life. But really, it's it's a way we can really learn because we've mm-hmm. experienced it and we know what it's like and and therefore our our values and our kind of our why behind what we're doing now is so much stronger. And anyone who needs to see an illustration of what Alison's talking about, go back and listen to the Meet Alison episode. <laughs> mm, You'll say, oh my goodness, I see what she's talking about. <laughs> okay, <laughs> let me tell you what I had for breakfast and then we can um, oh, yeah, dive yeah. into more food topics. So it was very boring. I feel quite quite boring next to you. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I could get really fancy about it though. So I'll try to make this sound really good. All right, okay. our friends butchered a pig. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> well, we helped them. So they they did the butcher and the slaughter. Like, I guess, mm-hmm. okay, I don't even know what I just said. <laughs> they killed the pig. Mm. We took it home and cut it up. Mm. <laughs> That's okay. what I'm trying to say. So then, of course, all those bones, I made big packages that say meaty pork bones, and they're very meaty. So because mm-hmm. I'm not very good at trimming yet. So... <laughs> all those meaty bones every once in a while I pull them out and make pork broth and it's so good and just mm. flavorful so I mm. took some of that so I'm trying to make it sound more interesting than just two ingredient breakfast oh, sounds lovely so, <laughs> I haven't sorry. made pork broth since we were in England I don't think oh so yeah I'm kind of a it's bit good jealous. it's good so I made yeah. a bowl of the pork broth with some salt and then I poached some eggs in it from our chickens and mm. That was my breakfast. <laughs> yeah. That was good. It sounds lovely. <laughs> Can't compete with yeah, beer bread, though. really, really nice. <laughs> what knife do you use to butcher with? Well, there's a few that I like. One is called a breaking knife, and it's a big, long, kind of like a scimitar sort of a knife. That one is okay. great. Then I have a small, I have two different boning knives. One's the fish boning knife that's you know what? We need to ask Aaron what they're really, he might know better. I might be using the wrong names, but one's a really flexible boning knife. Um, Mm. and you can do so much with that knife. And then the other one's a smaller, hard boning knife. I I never thought that boning knives were firm like this, but this is what it's supposedly called. Okay. And that has become our favorite knife for literally everything in the house. And then of all things, I also use in some instances um an offset bread knife and then okay. there's about i'm trying to think when you're breaking up the entire pig if the head is already off then there's about four i think times where you would need to use a bone saw and okay this is an interesting aspect of bringing ancestral movement back in that so you do you the the mo- the most premier way is to cut as much of the flesh as close as you can and then use leverage in the joints to not mm-hmm. ever have to use the saw as much as possible but when you're okay. when i'm cutting some specific pieces i need them a little bit smaller to make them fit what i'm doing and so and traditionally you would do this too i don't think really anybody leaves them 
like the entire spine together or something. But <clears throat> then you would cut the flesh as close as you can and then very carefully and slowly use the bone saw, get really close, and then use the weight of the meat again to leverage it and pop the rest of it apart. And mm -hmm. popularly you'll use like an electric saw, but that creates mm -hmm. some friction in, in the meat, which creates heat. And then it also um, shatters tiny bone fragments yeah. and propels yeah. them into the meat. So then you have another, you know, quality problem. So again, going back to using more of like, like for me, depending on the size of the pig, like I have to use my entire body to move the piece that <laughs> can be heavy, but it's good because it's movement paired with, you know. And are you doing that with Gary or just you? Um, we've done it. I did one on my own and he did one on his own just okay. because of the way. And you've got a out. big work surface for it. You've obviously got a huge space to, to lay this out on. Um, yeah, we, we did it on like a folding table on our deck. So oh, just like a plastic outside. table. Okay. Um, and okay. then when, when I did the first pig, it was, it was a really big one. And then a friend came and helped for the second half, but Gary had to work that day. So he wasn't there for that. And then when he did the second pig, and I think I prefer it this way, um, he was working on cutting out the pieces while I was inside working on taking care of all the bits. So like I yeah. could go, you know what I mean? Like there's so much processing that needs to be done. It's hard when you're doing all yeah. the cutting and there's nobody running like interference with the kids <laughs> meals yeah. for you and the kids or, yeah. um, pickup and the, the constant cleanup that you have to be doing during butchering. So it was a little bit easier when there was two of us. Wow. So when you butchered the pigs, did you, what did you throw away? What, what didn't you keep? Uh, we didn't throw away anything. Um, oh, well, okay. So they, I guess, no, we did technically, they came to us. Our friends had taken out the intestines. So okay. we got all the organs and glands and then they had taken out the intestines. Um, only because Naomi said they, in her episode with the Slovak that they use everything yeah. but the toenails. Yeah. Yeah. And like she said, I listened to her too. And she said, um, well, obviously I listened to her, but, uh, <laughs> she said that they sometimes do, and they sometimes don't save the intestines. And for us, since our friends did the slaughter while we weren't there, um, they would have had to clean the intestines yeah. and send them back with us. And I didn't want to ask them to do that. So, yeah, um, that. so the next time we'll be able to do that. Wow, so you've got a freezer full of it. <laughs> yes. I was cleaning it out the Lovely. other day and posting pictures in my Instagram stories. And I was surprised. I, I never know, I guess, what what people will be interested in posting about. And when I posted about sorting our books, I got like a million messages from that, which was so cool. I was like, I didn't know everybody was so interested in books. And then when I cleaned out the freezer, I got a lot of messages about that too. So that was fun. I, I love that. <laughs> I've only got three drawers in my freezer, so you can't really clean it out. It's just, <laughs> yeah. there's no like hidden corners that you don't know about. You have three drawers. I have three freezers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> not counting, not us. counting the ones on the fridge freezers. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty crazy. 
Okay, so let's, um, before we take up the whole episode, just <laughs> chatting about what we've been doing recently. Let's turn into like a KTC today? on the regular podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so let, what I wanted to talk about, and we've had a lot of questions about, or I definitely have, and um, you said we should, you know, why don't we just make this an episode was cooking for a big family, because as we've mm. definitely talked about, it's different than cooking for a smaller family. Now, I do not um, myself qualify as cooking for a big family. I only have three kids so far. <laughs> What's a big family then? What are we did? What are we defining as a big family? I don't know. My dad always says five kids is a starter family. <laughs> <laughs> says that's a starter pack. <laughs> Then it gets serious Gosh. after that. I think in the US, I would say people don't give you side eye until you hit five. You can okay. get away with four and people still consider you quite a normal family. By the time you hit five, you start getting lots of weird invasive questions. <laughs> okay. So that's probably the breaking point. I don't know if it's the same here in, in Europe. Um, my sister has three children and I consider that a big family because I've only got one, Gabriel. But right. I think... Yeah, I think maybe four would be what I would consider a, a big family here. So mm -hmm. perhaps we're just a, kind of a bit behind you. Five would be like a huge, yeah. not a starter pack, like a huge family in my yeah. book. I think two is pretty average over here. Um, mm. Three is quite normal. Four is not as common, but um, frequently seen. And then the circles that I run in anywhere from five to 15 is not considered Gosh. <laughs> super crazy um so I grew up I'm the second oldest so I was at fa fairly close to the top of the pack which means that I experienced the full experience of having a big family my youngest sister mm. um is still in high school um well she's homeschooled so homeschool high school whatever you call that I I think she is 17. Um, okay. So, so we've got a range. I'm 34. And what, your, your older, is you've got an older brother or sister? I have, did you say? I have one older sister. Um, how old is she? Uh, well, we're all two years apart. So she'd be 34. She'd be 36. So she's 36. So you've got 36 to 17. Mm -hmm. Wow. Mm -hmm. Um, and like my little sister, it's fun when you have a big family. I, I also feel like there's lots of things you see in a big family dynamic wise that literally don't just like, this is going to be a weird way to explain it. But remember how you said you made the booza and then you made it over and over and over. And then mm. you found that it got too alcoholic, but you only knew yeah. that because you were doing it. That dynamic wouldn't have been known to anybody who wasn't doing it over and over and over. Yeah, right. And I so that. I feel like in a big family, there's dynamics that exist that I, I feel like are probably like intuitive to nature, but they don't exist outside. For instance, my little mm -hmm. sister. So my mom obviously at some point stopped having kids and my little yeah. sister was four when I got married and Gosh. seven when my first child was born that's just so, amazing that there would be a young <laughs> child around still when yeah. you were giving birth I mean yeah. that's not something that I would be in my world you know because right everybody's moved it just, on it just wouldn't right yeah because we're all we all move in fairly the same cohort but what happens then is 
although my mom stopped having younger children, then I started. So she still has the experience yeah. of holding a baby, taking care of a baby. Being, and, and she has said to me before, and my mom and I have observed many times that the dynamic is it, that she is more like a sibling to my kids than anything else. Wow. You know, the, the way they interact, they would fight sometimes, they would play, they would fight, they would play, you know, <laughs> like it's very interesting. And then um, even though my, I grew up seeing my mom nursing babies on the couch every day, of, pretty much of my life, then my little sister was the tail end. So she didn't see that, but almost immediately I picked up the chain. And so she yeah. saw me sitting on the couch, nursing the babies. So in an interesting way, the cycle, the exposure to all the ages and the stages of life and growth continues unbroken. Whereas I see a lot of kids or a lot of women, I should say, you know, my age say, I've never seen somebody breastfeed a child. I've never seen a child yeah. be born. I've never held an infant. I didn't know two-year-olds did that. I had no idea that at four years old, a child could do that, you know, because they just, they've literally never been exposed to it. So, yeah, I mean, I, I would be the same. That's what I would have said. I mean, there was me right. and my sister right. growing up and then um, my sister had children before me, but I wasn't around her that much. And so when I came to have Gabriel, I'd never seen a, a, anyone giving birth in real life. Right. And when I chose to to get, elect for a home birth, <laughs> it just I'd never <laughs> experienced it at all. I went into it, you know, with no first-hand experience of that at all. Right. I think what you're saying, it's amazing that it must normalize so many things I think it does. in a woman's yeah. life. You mm -hmm. know, just the, like you said, the breastfeeding, the different stages of life, the different periods the stages that we go of pregnancy, through as women. And you know yeah. what morning sickness looks like in your mom and you know like how, exactly. how much she I mean, needs I to rest after baby. And, yeah. It's all very fascinating. And then I didn't have that comfort or I wasn't, that confidence wasn't instilled in me to then for me to approach my own birth, my own pregnancy right, right. and my own feeding of Gable. When Gable was young, I, uh, Rob and I were literally learning just between us two what to do because I'd never seen it. And, yeah. and that, that confidence that having that around you must instill in your bones to be able to then go and have your family and deal totally. with the things that come up is, is incredible, I think. I hear a lot of parents say, and there's jokes about it and, and things like that all the time, you know, we had a baby and, and then they're just going to let us go home with it. You know, like joking, yeah. oh, I've got no idea what to do with this, this infant, you know? And um, for Gary, that was more similar because he said he'd, he'd never really held an infant until we had our own. But I grew up, I mean, I honestly don't think there was a day of my life after like you know, the very, very young years that there wasn't like a baby on my hip at some point during the day. And it like, I, I don't know, it's very normal. And I, I never thought it, I was always like, what do people mean? Like, why are they sending us home with this baby? And it wasn't until I realized, well, they've, they've never been around a baby. This, and this must like, feed into postnatal problems for women and postnatal depression. I it, think, has because, it has I to. I mean, when I, when I given birth, it was a complete and utter shock to me. Mm. I mean, I think for, for any mother, becoming a mother for the first well, time yes. is. Yeah. But for 
But for me, because I wasn't party to that world before then, I went through a huge kind of post-shock. Oh. Um, and so many women go into postnatal depression. You think yeah. if that had been around them as just a given for many, many, many years before they'd had a baby and that was still around them with a mother who's had a young child and was in their life, then I imagine that there wouldn't be so much postnatal depression as there is now. We definitely need to have a conversation about <laughs> pregnancy and the postpartum because I have lots mm. of thoughts. <laughs> Excellent. So Can we you, were... Put that on the list. <laughs> yes, please do. Actually, it is something I've been getting asked about a lot because I'm a doula. So um, naturally, mm. I like to move in the world of birth. So I get asked about birth nutrition a lot. So... Um, anyways, we were homeschooled, you know, we had all our, all our schooling was done at home. And my mom actually never set out with the intention of doing that. It was just that my older sister wanted to learn to read. And my mom thought, but she's not ready for school yet, but she figured, I guess I'll teach her how to read. And then we just kept on doing that. So we, um, we were all trained from a really young age to do work around the house. That's another thing that I see. And mm -hmm. I, my mom says that four is actually the number where having a lot of kids starts to get easier because she said, anytime up before four, you think you can do everything and you really stretch yourself to the limit, the breaking point, even to do it all. And after four, you realize you can't, and you give in and you have yeah. to really, um, you know, utilize crew resource management <laughs> skills. Mm -hmm. And she was really good about training us. I mean, we all, we all left the home, boys and girls with skills in cooking and cleaning and the, the homemaking arts, I guess you would say. And that has proven quite useful for all of us as adults. And um, one of my earliest memories is cooking with mom. You know, I, I, I remember where we were standing and I was so short that I couldn't see the top of the counter. So I must have been fairly young, but we were making cornbread. I still remember that. Mm -hmm. And I was so proud when dad ate it at dinner and was like, this is so good. I was like, yes, <laughs> we all kind of had our things that we gravitated towards. And I always gravitated towards cooking. So I was trying to remember mm -hmm. when exactly it started, but I would say by about 13, probably I was doing pretty much all the cooking for the family. And that was um, also where I got my love of gardening and my parents usually had a garden. And then after a while they stopped doing that. So I took it on as a project for myself and told mom it was school and took a bunch of pictures and recorded stuff so that I could count it for credits. Mm -hmm. And that was also where I taught myself how to can and told mom that was school too, <laughs> and took notes and took nice. pictures so that I could count it for credits. And, um, I should say here, since I, if it is a big family food cooking episode, I'll probably have some listeners who homeschool. Um, I was a terrible student <laughs> in terms of, I didn't want to do anything that I was told to do. It was a terrible way to live your life. But, um, I, my mom was actually really good about it and she found where I, uh, I don't know what, what I'm trying to say is I completed all the required credits for high school in our state and above and beyond mm -hmm. and did great in college in terms of, 
you know, I had a 4.0 GPA, including hard sciences on everything I did, but I took tons of time off, as you would say in high school, because I literally was just like, all I wanted to do was can stuff and garden and write, write books about ancient Egypt and stay up all night writing novel after novel after novel. So, um, I, I guess what I want to say is if you are worried about your child, <laughs> yeah. it's probably going to be okay. Um, yeah. all right. So, and that's not all to say how smart I was in terms of college. That's just to say how low the bar is in college. So I, I guess, I, I guess all this in conclusion to say, I've been cooking for a lot of people for a long time. <laughs> there we go. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. I mean, so, how did you cook for a family that big age 13? That is incredible. Well, I don't know. It just seemed perfectly normal. Um, yeah. You know, you'd make bigger recipe batches of everything and, and, and I really, I really resonated with what one of the um, women said in chewing the fat, which I'm sure you and I will be referencing for the rest of our lives, <laughs> where she said, I don't remember what the recipes were. We just cooked food. And that yeah, is how I feel yeah. about so many things. I, I don't, I wasn't always making recipes per se. I just cooked the food we had and we ate it. Yeah. And um, my mom just shopped for what she shopped for. And she didn't particularly say to me, what ingredients do you want? And I never, never crossed my mind to ask her. And um, I remember my dad saying one time we're leaving church and he was like, Andrea, what's, what's going to be for lunch or whatever. And I was like, Hmm, I don't know. I'll have to see when I get there. Because sometimes, you know, when you get to the end of the grocery like we never ran out of food or were low on food, but sometimes you'd be like, oh, now there's no more sour cream and now there's no more cheese. Mm. You know, you just have like all the boring ingredients left. But my dad would always say, Andrea can make something out of nothing. It's amazing. Right. So <laughs> I was always having to be very creative in what I came up with because it was just, you know, you have what you have and you got to make yeah. it into something. Yeah. yeah. So we just cooked the food and then we ate it. <laughs> mm. So when I was trying to think, Allison, about how I wanted to approach the topic of cooking for a big family, at first I just had a bunch of scattered thoughts all over the page, and then I started trying to sort them, and then I started trying to think about them in a in a visual way because I'm just that's just how I think. So I pictured um, first, what is your widest scope of influence, and I don't mean your influence out; I mean the influence in. So your widest scope of influence. Um, starting with, you know, your the actual region where you live and your territory, as I called it in my mind, all the way down to um, your heart and like inside of your mind. And even mm-hmm. though, even though really nothing happens without the heart part, <laughs> I'm going to start on the outer ring and work my way in. Sound good? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All I'm right. Ready. Just, just stop the train anytime you have a question. Once it leaves the station, I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So first you have your territory. This is the big, this is your actual range. So where you live, I will literally say that where you live geographically will influence, can influence the size of your family. And what I mean is it is hard to have a big family in a high rise in New York. I know people yeah. who have done it and they have said that all they want to do is get out of there because it doesn't serve the size of family. It is great for a couple, but for a big family, 
it just works better to have more room. Not every family has a ton of room. I've known people with eight kids who live in like a condo, 800 square feet, and they made it happen, but they eventually moved out to a farm, but they obviously wanted to move to a farm because it supported the way they wanted to live. Mm -hmm. Some things tend to go hand in hand with big families. Not always, definitely not always, but certainly enough to be a notable trend. And one is big families tends to be (laughs) comorbid. I don't know if that's the right word. Um, There's got to be a better word for that. With um, homeschool, those tend to go together. Yeah. And also big families often tend to coexist, I'll say, with bigger pieces of property. That is certainly not the way it has been historically, <laughs> as we noted from chewing the fat where she's again, yeah. where she's that we're going to have to start taking shots for that shots of lard where yeah. <laughs> she said that they had like six girls in one room and five boys in the other, you know? Yeah. But that being said, um, even in those older books, you'll notice or older memories, you'll notice that the bigger families tended to thrive on farms. Whereas if you notice a lot of the city families, they said there was two of them or one of them or three of them. Um, obviously they didn't have the same, I don't know if you want to even say options. (laughs) And I think living on the land and the homeschooling thing go, as you said, go closely together because if you're on the land, there's a lot of work to do and Mm -hmm. you're outside all the time and the kids are doing that and it's important for them to do that. And that is an education and therefore it, 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 naturally fits with them being around not with them being mm-hmm. somewhere else and i'm i'm mm. i'm not saying that um you have to have a lot of property to have a lot of kids i'm just saying cooking for big family often can work well with having land because of the fact that you'll be able to produce more of your own resources when you have more room mm. so cooking for big family often happens that way um you also your territory is going to include your farm network and if you want to cook an ancestral diet for a big family, you need to have a farm network. You need to know the farmers. If your kids are old enough, they should definitely be volunteering on the farms. I have volunteered on and worked on different farms and will probably always do that because uh, for one, you learn a lot when you work for another farmer. And sometimes you can do work swaps for food, which I've done a lot of. Mm-hmm. It was like basically how I fed our family when we lived in Virginia, but also, um, also you, well, it's okay. Aside from learning and then swapping, um, you're also building a relationship with the farmer. So I'm not necessarily saying work one hour for three pounds of food. I'm saying I went out, I showed up and I helped, you know, we dug trenches during the floods, whatever, whatever, whatever. And then that summer, Who's the farmer going to think of when she has a bumper crop of tomatoes and they're going to spoil? She's going to call you. Mm. And I'm not saying that, you know, we do something in order to get something, but there is a social contract where we kind of reciprocate each other, generally speaking. And it's a literal win-win contract. Everybody wins (laughs) in a contract like that. So um, Mm. just showing up and helping people. I, I cannot count the infusions that our household has had of you name it, you name whatever it is, um, just by showing up and being present for people as a friend and as a helper. 
Um, another thing you can do that would involve your region is support bills in government, literally in government. There's ways you can vote that will make your food more or less affordable. When small farms, and they are, are constantly being choked out and put the, like the, the crimps put on them and um, thumb screws hammered down, it gets harder and harder to get your food to market at an affordable price. So farmers will probably tell you if you ask them, hey, is there any bills I should be aware of lately? Like what's being passed in, in the house that I need to be aware of or what's going on in our local government? And they'll tell you. Um, so that's your big picture kind of scope, the territory. Then we're going to come a little bit closer and I'm going to talk about the voices. So this is who you're listening to. I'm just going to say right out of the gate that when you have a big family, people think they have all kinds of a right to talk to you about your sex life, your intimacy, <laughs> uh, the planet, the climate, the environment. Like they will say all kinds of things to you that you're like, really? And in front of your kids too. So, um, so the voices that you allow to speak into your life when you have a big family matters a lot. And I'm including that in a conversation about food because there is no part of life that is disconnected from the table. So, um, in my philosophy, I would see children as a blessing that is actually not really true. The world at large weirdly <laughs> doesn't make sense mm, um I agree there's not a lot of um there's not a lot of uh oh i don't know what the right word is there's not a lot of grace given and and i, and I hear the same arguments just like when people say there's too many cows that's going to kill the climate get rid of all the cows mm. and then you see hear the same argument there's too many children get rid of the children um mm. Maybe it's more the way we're living and less, you know, the cows. So um, communicate with other big families. You want to have other big families in your life. If you're the only big family you know, that can be a little bit isolating. Um, but when you know other big families, there's wisdom that comes with that. Like I was talking about how, you know, I, my little sister was four when I got married and then, um, seven when I had my first child. And so there's different dynamics that exist that nobody outside of somebody else in a big family is going to be able to understand. And then in sibling order, like there's, you know, the birth order psychology and stuff, there's unique dynamics within a big family that literally don't exist outside of a big family. Like the fact that you can have two or three generations within one set of siblings, <laughs> you know, and it was like, oh yeah, that's where that cutoff was for that. And, and oh, those yeah. kids don't know anything about those movies. Cause they like that DVD was broken when they were little. So, <laughs> you know, like there's just <laughs> funny, weird little things that only exist in a big family. So if you have other big families you can talk to, it's, it's really, supportive also other moms I think that's have... that's wise wisdom for really anything that you you know that is part of your life mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. you could do with support on for yeah. for example here you know we're we're an English family in Italy and uh -huh. there are things that are different for us very very different right. because we're an English-speaking family in Italy and therefore for us to go and find other English-speaking families in Italy as well as having Italian speaking family friends as well. Uh -huh. We just, we get that support and knowledge of 
someone who understands, ah, yeah, you know, it's like that for me too. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a myriad different things that everyone listening to this has that's particular about them and their situation and going and finding people who understand and you can swap and support and share and get support and comfort with Mm -hmm. is so important so yeah I think that's that's really relevant in what we're talking but really relevant for literally everyone's listening who who will have something like that where they could go and find community I think you could take the word big family out and put in anything you want and pretty much everything I'm saying would apply to like a lot of different things Um, so when you talk to moms with a lot of kids, you get a lot of wisdom that you're not going to get, um, in terms of applying to a big family. I'm not saying a mom with only one child doesn't have wisdom. I'm saying a mom with one child, she could give you input on things for eight kids, but hearing it from a mom with eight kids will probably Mm -hmm. be more like constructive if that Mm -hmm. makes sense. So like I asked a mom a mom friend I've known my whole life and she has 12 kids. She's the one who taught me how to make pasole. We talked about that a long time ago. Uh, And, and I said, how do you cook for such a big family all the time, every day? And you go to her house, doesn't matter what time of day, there will be delicious food prepared for you. And she said, well, one strategy that she's used her whole life that her mom taught her. And I told you, she grew up in Mexico she Excuse said, Gabriel, oh, there he is. He's just come home with the bell. <laughs> That's so cute. Um, she Amazing. said, oh, in the beginning of the week, cook a huge batch of beans and then mm. use them all week long. So you have some beans yep. to throw into a noodle dish. You have some beans to mash and cook as uh, refried beans for burritos. You have some beans to cook, um, you know, refried beans and eggs for breakfast. And, and so that was a great strategy that we've used, um, just having a huge batch of beans cooked of whatever kind you like and just kind of scattering it throughout the week as an extra protein. And, um, again, I recognize it's kind of funny. I'm saying this, I only have three kids, but <laughs> at the oh, same I do time. that for us and I only have one kid. I've <laughs> yeah. cooked loads of lentils up and then we just use them in the week. Yeah, and, exactly. you know, I imagine if, if I had more kids, I would just be doing yeah. more lentils. So it makes mm-hmm. complete sense. Yeah. You just have to think scale and, um, you're, you're, you're cooking on a (laughs) industrial level when you have a lot of kids, Mm. but your help scales too, unless you have octopus or something like that, but your help Mm -hmm. scales with you. And that was something my mom said, you know, when I was a teenager and I was cooking and then my mom said people, there was at one point, I don't remember like six teenagers in the house. I forget. And my mom said, people always said to her, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. You have, oh, you poor thing. And she's like, what are you talking about? I don't cook. I don't clean. I I don't do the laundry. Like I love my life. (laughs) Um, She said, you know, she goes, but they, they didn't see their teens for like their entire childhood. They saw them in the evening after school. And that was just telling them to do homework and go to bed, but they weren't really raising them in the sense that the, and I'm not trying to come off as like judgmental. I'm just saying like, just like hours added up were less at home. Whereas my mom was literally beside us every day of our life, teaching us how to scrub, teaching us how to mop, teaching us how to, you know, do laundry or whatever. And, um, we of course had assigned chores and then not saying we were always great about it, but (laughs) we 
were doing them. And then by the time we were teenagers, we were doing them better. Um, and so it paid off for her all that time <laughs> training us really paid off. Um, so you have more people in the house, but you also have more hands helping is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And it is a little hard when you have, if you have a lot of them really close together and there's a batch of twins and they're all really small, that's definitely something different. And I can't really speak into that situation, but, um, let's see. Mm -hmm. So, so something else to consider with the voices going back to the territory thing where I talked about like living in a high rise in New York, you would feel frustrated and you would feel like it was hard to have five kids if you lived with them in a two bedroom apartment in New York. And you'd feel like it was ungodly expensive because you'd be eating food shipped into the city or restaurant food every yeah. single day. But if you live in the country where like my kids are outside most of the day and they do have chores and I'm not saying they always do them again, but you know, I'm training them daily and, um, their help offsets, you know? So, so I tell them all the time, you know, we'll, we have this phrase, like, what are you doing to contribute to the household right now? So, um, maybe your chore is done, but we're just working on the household. So what are you doing? Well, I'm going to, you know, bring in new, you know, I don't know, you name it, like take out the trash or something. Mm -hmm. Um, so it many hands make like work applies here. Um, your mentors, there's books and podcasts that kind of support having a big family. Um, you know, the philosophy and the attitudes surrounding it. Um, I would also always recommend Charlotte Mason. Um, just because there, I heard somebody say once, you always know who the Charlotte Mason moms are because they walk into a room and they get down on like eye level with a child and talk to them like a person. Mm -hmm. And, and I was like, that's such a beautiful way of saying it. But Charlotte Mason, um, had, had a way of reminding us that, um, children are humans also and invaluable and should be listened to, not allowed to control the household, but acknowledged in the same way you don't really want any one person in the household to, you know, domineer it, but you want them all to contribute and be heard within the household. Um, so if people want to, if people don't know who Charlotte Mason is or want to dig into her work more, where, where do they go to find her? Where did you go to find well, her? Well, if they, if they want a book, I would say grab for the children's sake. That's a good, okay. Shorter version. Um, Charlotte Mason also wrote books and well she get, or she gave talks and wrote books and they were combined into books um so you could read any one of her volumes there's six i think um okay and i have a <laughs> i have a fan page <laughs> for charlotte mason <laughs> my charlotte mason commonplace which i haven't posted on since um, June of last year, but so I need to post again, but I just oh. put quotes from her books up there. Yeah. I remember seeing those coming up. I can't believe you haven't posted since June. It seems yeah. like some of the quotes yeah. are stuck in my head for a long time then. They do get stuck in your head. I want, mm. I, I will start posting on them again soon, but, um, I have it on my calendar and I'm not rushing myself, but she has so many, um, quotes. Okay. I just grabbed the book. I actually brought the book down with me because I thought I'll share a quote from Charlotte Mason. And mm. I, I just, you know, 
I just let it fall open and it opened to this, this one, which I love in this. And it applies to us now more, more so. I don't know. She wrote this in the Victorian era. So it still applies. She says in this time of extraordinary pressure, educational and social, perhaps a mother's first duty to her children is to secure for them a quiet growing time, a full six years of passive receptive life, the waking part of it spent for the most part out in the fresh air. I love that. Um, So finding people who support the, the way you want to live. Um, Just looking at my notes to make sure I didn't leave anything off of there. Okay. So Mm -hmm. then the next sort of ring. So you've got this, the territory, the big, outside territory you've got all these voices feeding in and then within there I have the next layer which I call the home this is Mm -hmm. your actual physical literal dwelling not the um philosophical metaphysical home but the physical dwelling can be made more or less to support your goals of eating ancestral and having a large family so drawers, shelves, pantry, like these are the kinds of things I'm talking about. Um, I have, so I know you've got super organization in your house. Are you going to tell us some of your wonderful kind of methods in your own kitchen? Um, no, I'm actually going to tell you the methods that I used before I had a big house. <laughs> yeah. Because they're probably more applicable to it. So this is the biggest house I've ever lived in. I've never had mm-hmm. this much room. I've never... I've never had this much convenience, I guess we'll say. So I will start by saying um, the the myth that is always and always said, which is I can't afford to have more children, right? And the reason I say myth is simply because it's not an actual fact of being able to afford children 99% of the time, let's just say. it's. a preference of certain conveniences or ways of life. So Mm -hmm. what I want to unpack that to say, which is not to say everybody needs to, you know, run out and have 20 kids. What I'm trying to say there is the people that I know who have bigger families have almost always opted for a lower income in terms of like, you know, the, net total that would go on your taxes, Mm. more production within the home. So less cash income, but production within the home and often not always, but often one of the parents staying home, not working outside the home and being sort of Mm. the primary conduit of that production. Mm -hmm. And the driver of the training of the staff, which is the children. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I guess what I'm trying to say is I hear people with what I would consider and for statistical purposes in the U.S. to be a large income say, oh, my gosh, we couldn't afford to have more than two children. Because they're, they're saying that in the sense that somebody will say to you, oh my goodness, I couldn't afford to eat pate every week. And you're like, well, yeah. I don't buy pate. I yeah. walk to a farm and 
I get it because of a relationship with a farmer. It is given to me. I come home and I peel off the membrane and I wash it and I make the pate, you know? So you're saying, well, I can't afford pate either, but I value it and I value its input into my life. So I make it happen. And so I see with a lot of big families, while we value what children bring to our life and, and what we see as their role in the world, their purpose in the world. And so we choose not to push a button and get DoorDash restaurant meals delivered, but we make a homeschool project out of raising chickens or something, you know, like it's, it's just a preference of how you want to spend your time. It's not I agree. Necessarily. And that is true for so many things. Yeah. But, you know, so many things. So many things. We we don't have a massive income here, but we eat the food from the farms around us and we spend a, a large percentage of our income on food, like mm-hmm. extremely large, because we value what that brings to us. And we choose right. that over other things that other people might spend their money on. Right. Because we we completely value and love what it mm-hmm. brings to us. Mm-hmm. And and I think life becomes a lot easier when we're super clear on, you know, what we value and we take steps to bring it to lo- to you know to life to yeah to to bring it into fruition because then we're getting the things that we really totally believe in and we just mm-hmm. drop the things that aren't important to us. We know what's not important and then we don't do it. So yep. it's <laughs> It's um yeah I, I really believe that that values and priority are um yeah are a bigger influence on this idea of what we can afford and what we can't. It's that's the question we should be asking, not about mm-hmm. the details of how much these things cost and whether we want all this stuff. Exactly. We we can look at our lives in a different way through what we value. Yeah, yeah, completely. So carry on. That um. I'm trying not to, I'm really not ranting. Am I like, I'm not no, saying, no. I, I'm, I don't feel or think that everybody has to have a bajillion kids or something. I just, I get asked these questions a lot. So I'm trying to yeah, answer yeah. them. <laughs> um, okay. So, um, so you're home. Uh, so the other thing I hear people say, and this is going to be the same thing, Allison just applied to another thing is I don't Mm. have the room and Mm. I've seen your kitchen and I know that they're not telling Mm. the truth. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Allison truly doesn't have room. Um, how many people would live in that house and say, Ooh, well, you can't really cook in this house. So we don't, a lot of people would say that. Yeah. They would say, Oh, you can cook like bachelor pad style food in here, but that's about it. Um, well, okay, but I'm almost loath to post pictures of how our food storage is now, because I don't want to give a false impression that you need to have this. We have never, ever had shelves like this. (laughs) We have never had space to stack things like this and line it up like this. Mm -hmm. We've just never had that. It's always been, um, you know, lined up in the spare bedroom or, you know, beside the yeah. bed, along the bed, under the bed, um, <laughs> you know, it, over the washing machine, like in closets, everywhere, stacked on the deck, whatever. We've had freezers on the deck, under tarps, in the rain. Like we we have just never had the, the square footage of the garage in this house 
is more than the square footage of our last house is what I'm trying to say. (laughs) So, So this is just not, this is not normal for us. Um, and so I don't want somebody to think that this is how it has to be in order to do this. I, I again would say again, with the large families tend to be people who have opted for lower income dollar wise in order to have a bigger family and produce more within the home. I would also say people who produce and store food at home in order to, you know, save money usually have less room than anybody else. (laughs) Mm. Like the people who have said to me, I don't have room. They have gigantic houses. They, what they're trying to say is I don't want to see crates of pickles. (laughs) That's what they're saying. Don't want to be stepping (laughs) over them. Right. And I don't want to be stepping over them either, but you know, Mm. that's what they're, that's what they're saying. You know, I, I have a spare room full of toys. It's called a toy room. I don't want to put, you know, bins of sawdust with sweet potatoes in there. (laughs) Well, okay. So again, it's not really a fact. It's just a preference, which if you want a toy room, have a toy room. If you don't want to store sweet potatoes, don't store sweet potatoes. Like I really don't care what you want to do. Just don't, fall victim to the myth that that's a fact that you don't have the room. Mm. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I definitely like, again, I'm not saying anybody has to store food. I'm just saying maybe you desperately want to store food, but you never considered the fact that you could have crates of it as decor. (laughs) So (laughs) now I've seen, I've seen Instagram pictures of the most beautiful setups of shelves with ferments and preserves and things on it. And I mean, I literally look at it and think, oh my gosh, I would just be loved to looking at that. Wouldn't you? (laughs) Yeah. And I'll also say, I've seen a ton of Instagram reels and pictures. People send them to me all the time of pantries and they're like, OMG, bulk pantry storage. And Mm. like, I have twice as much of that lined up in my hallway right now. Mm. (laughs) That's not even when you get, that's not, that's before you even get to the food storage. And I'm not trying to say like, yay me, I have so much food. And what I'm trying to say is it's not really bulk. (laughs) And the people who really have bulk storage, they ain't posting the pictures online because they're, they're not pretty. They're, they're like, yeah. well, nobody wants to see this. There's like lines and lines and lines of jars and, and they're in yeah. cardboard boxes with masking tape that says tomato mm. 2021, tomato 2021, tomato 2021, mm. you know, and, and that's how we have it most of the time. And that's, so it's pretty much always been for me. I'm not saying that you don't want to make it beautiful. Obviously I have dreams and goals to make everything look nice. And I will be working out there again this week because I figure we might as well make it into a showpiece if we have it. It's the most expensive decorations we have is bags of oatmeal. So what, what I am saying is practically speaking, it's probably not usually going to look like those white painted, brightly lit, super organized Instagram pictures. (laughs) Mm. And if you have a big family, you almost definitely will be storing food because it is, we have 
a family of five people, not five kids, five people. And I mm. don't know how people keep buying these teeny tiny little containers at the grocery store for one, you know, plastic trash. But the other is, holy cow, it's expensive. Like, yeah, wow, 50 pounds of oatmeal costs about the same as two pounds of oatmeal at the grocery store. Yeah, completely. Literally. So with a big family, you almost definitely will be storing food in bulk. And if you are a big family, you also, I don't remember what category this is supposed to go in, but <laughs> I was going to say another tip that I got from the mom with lots of kids. And this is something I have done my whole life is always say yes. I, well, I, I came up with that tip for myself, but she said, also ask. <laughs> so mm-hmm. what I mean by that is I always say yes. If somebody says, Hey, Andrea, I have some, and I say, yes, I don't okay. get into the details. I, I examine it more closely after the fact. And every once in a while, this is not something that we can utilize for ourselves, but because I always say, yes, I'm the first person they call. I have probably been given thousands of dollars more than that thousands of dollars worth so you don't mean in, just food you mean kind of like household objects and um, kitchen well, equipment not, okay and not necessarily everything well I don't know people don't really offer me lots of other things every once in a while I do but um specifically saying with food I would always say yes well somebody says books too mm-hmm. I also always say yes because I've gotten some mm-hmm. boxes that I'm like this looks like a bunch of twaddle and then I dig into it and I'm like what bullfinch's mythology yes please so mm-hmm. the food thing I I remember a friend saying in Virginia Andrea you always get so much free food how do you do it like people are always giving you free food I was like I don't know but it just <laughs> finds me I I had a, a friend of a friend of a friend, somebody I don't even know called me and they're like, Hey, I'm moving to Texas. She had had eight kids and she had a basement full of organic legumes, buckets and buckets and buckets and buckets and bags of grain in refrigerators. And, um, I took it all. And then I, I, I turned around and shared it with another family. So we didn't just keep it all for ourselves. And we're still eating those beans. Wow. <laughs> like, there's, there was Swedish red beans. There was pinto beans, black beans, chickpeas, three five-gallon buckets of chickpeas. Um, there was navy beans, lentils, green peas, like rice, Gosh. blue corn, yellow corn, I, so much stuff. And just, I guess, because somebody knew that Andrea would probably take it. And it was all organic, mm-hmm. by the way. <laughs> from the Mm. same place where I buy from Azure. It was all organic from Azure, but she couldn't take it on the move. So, and then she also, because I was there anyways, she was like, do you want all these antique dishes and meat grinders? And I was like, yes, please. please." (laughs) Yeah. So always say yes. And then what the, the friend with 12 kids said was also ask, like if you drive past a house with, you know, 12 apple trees in front and then there's just apples all over the ground go to the door and ask do you care if we mm. pick up the windfall apples and she was like we have filled our 15 passenger van gone home and made applesauce you know 400 quarts for free basically but you had to put the effort into it but because you had 10 mm. kids helping you it wasn't so bad um and so by saying yes and by asking there's quite a lot um that you can i mean i i i can, one time I was walking on the boardwalk in Virginia and there was like a race, like a, you know, people do like five K's or whatever. Mm. And they had bins of bananas and oranges. And so I 
I just asked, there was somebody there who looked official and I was like, everybody was gone. So I was like, Do you, can I take these? And she was like, sure. We're just going to throw them away. And I was like, sweet. So then it's fruit. So I instantly texted everybody I knew and I was like, come to my house and get oranges and bananas. <laughs> and people showed up and they were like, yes, please. Thank you. And all kinds of families were benefiting. And I froze bags and bags. I dried bags. And we literally just used up like the last bag of dried bananas after we moved to this house. <laughs> so the next year, I knew the race was coming and I went out like 4 a.m. <laughs> and I was like, hey, when you guys are done, do you if I care if I like? And they're like, yeah, that'd be great. Just come pick up all the leftovers. And I was like, sweet. And they don't have to take him away. Exactly. Yeah. They would all go in the landfill. So, because they cut the oranges in half and they cut the bananas in half. So it's literally all trash once, once they're done. So I don't know, just a weird, that was, I asked, you know, <laughs> they said yes. And it benefited a mm. ton of us. So anyways, um, I don't know where I got. How long has this where, been? Where are you on your list? Okay. No, so, I think I'm going to have to try and keep your train on track, I think, because okay. we're over we're, the hour. We're winding down. <laughs> we're, we've got the brakes on. Okay. So, so, but, but do what you can to your space to make it amenable to having big family, build shelves, sort boxes, label things. I'm very big on labeling. Um, keep pantry lists if you can. Um, raise animals, great homeschool project. If you can, um, you know, utilize your freezers, prep food if you can, because just cooking for a big family, if you've got, you know, 20 pounds of cooked ground beef or gallon bags of chopped peppers and chopped onions and things, you can mm. produce meals at speed a little bit better. Um, a, a weekly plan, the homesteading family talked about this. I'll link this them. They have nine kids and they're really big on their YouTube channel. They don't really post on their podcast and they don't really, um, do much on Instagram, but their YouTube is fantastic. And she mm -hmm. has lots of strategies for working with a big family, including using jurisdictions for chores, which we utilize that ever since I heard her say that. And also, um, weekly planning. So just planning out a loose, um, you know, seven days of dinners, um, just so you kind of know what to get out of the freezer and do you and do that? Up. Yes. Do you remember the conversation we had with Lexi is on the Patreon yeah. where we talked about and meal planning feed, yeah. and Lexi's like, I think you, and you said this too. You're like, I think you do a little more meal planning than you think. Um, my meal planning is just not, not like three days of, or three meals and snacks written out. It's a little more loose. Like, okay we've got pork bones, yeah. we've got a rump roast, we've got, you know, and then I kind of, what could I do? Mm -hmm, yeah. I kind of pull them out of the freezer and move them around as suits the day. Um, but it does, I, our family's still small enough that I could can get away with being lazy in my planning. But once you hit four kids plus you really, it's very hard to get away without planning because for, an entire like casserole dish is one meal and it's gone. It's not like there's leftovers or something. And so you can't always just wing it. That's where food gets expensive is having to yeah. wing it because then you're relying on somebody else to do the processing. And the so when you were 13 and cooking for your mm -hmm. family, were you planning the meals for the week then? Um, I don't really, th I, I, sometimes I would write them out on a board I was really obsessed with the idea of having a restaurant. 
So whenever we sat down to eat, my dad would say, and he still says, ah, Andrea's elegant restaurant. So like I wrote that on a paper and hung it on the back door. I was very into this idea. Um, and so I would, I would write a menu cause it felt legit, you know, Okay. <laughs> but I wasn't really a meal planner you per weren't, se. You weren't planning. Okay. Yeah. Because you didn't know what you're going to have from day to day. Sometimes this was in the fridge and then somebody ate it. So <laughs> that happened. Um, <laughs> But, but it does help because you got to get stuff out of the freezer and, yeah. and my mom was ordering from Azure back then. Um, mm-hmm. She was like as an early adopter. So we always had like bags of wheat lined up in the kitchen okay. and we had to grind the wheat and whatever. So, <laughs> um, um, okay. I'm going to transition right into the last one, which is yeah, the kitchen. Okay. <laughs> so the the home is was really hard for me to separate what went under home to kitchen so i just tried to think big structural things outside of the home that support your goal but within the kitchen this is more specific yeah the meal planning do write down i also write like a punch list on the wall i have a whiteboard hanging up um lexi um talks about her index card and she's got me really obsessed with doing that where she just writes out her three meals for the day the night before because that does give you time to yank anything out of the freezer that you need. Mm-hmm. Um, but without, it, it is a little bit hard to plan way far in advance because suddenly you have to drive into town and pick up a lot of propane or something. And so now you're not going to be here. So you mm. can't do that heavy prep meal and you have to have something you can throw in easy. So um, planning within 24 hour cycles, I guess works the best for me, but um, mm-hmm. in your kitchen, you want to have, cookbooks that support the way you eat. And I'll just say right now, a cabin full of food, which I've mentioned before is probably made for big families. So, um, Mm -hmm. nourishing traditions is another one that I recommend for big families. It's all very conducive to scaling up and down nourishing traditions for kids, because if we aren't teaching our kids how to cook, what what are we doing? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, what are we Mm -hmm. thinking? Isn't that not what they lament more than anything in chewing the fat is that the younger generations don't know how to prepare the foods and they don't want to. They don't want to know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, The ball, uh, I get asked a lot, what do I use for canning? I would say the ball blue book and the ball home preserving book probably use the most but I have lots of wonderful. We'll put all these in the show notes. So yeah. Yeah. I'll go find them. Radical homemaking (laughs) for your Mm -hmm. everything. Um, And another tip that came from the mom with 12 kids and my mom never explicitly said this to me, but she implicitly demonstrated this because I can testify that it's true. Um, So both these moms would say, and this is probably the hardest thing, (laughs) but it is, Mm it will pay off. And I know Allison, from what you've said that this is what you do too. (laughs) When the child asks to help, never say no. (laughs) That is so hard. That is so hard sometimes. Um, When there's a million things to do yes, and you know, you wanted to get something done in two minutes and it's now going to take you 20 minutes. But Mm. I do remember, wasn't it C.S. Lewis who said, um, the children aren't the distraction from the important work. They are the important work. (laughs) And so I, I just like that will flash up before my eyes and, and I'll suck that heavy sigh back into my face and be like, sure, Mm -hmm. go grab a chair and stand up here and sprinkle flour everywhere. You know, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Crack some eggs over the floor. Yes. Everywhere. 
the children will refine you. <laughs> you will instantly see how much patience you don't have and you will learn. So, um, uh, I, I guess it's weird. I, this whole conversation is about cooking for a big family and, and I don't have that much to say about the kitchen, but, um, I guess I would say primarily everything outside, everything we just said, your lifestyle is supporting what happens in the kitchen. And without yeah. those things happening, it is kind of hard to yeah. make the kitchen function well. And I would say the most important thing I was trying to think of what, what was like the top thing I would say for the kitchen is that take any product or food you like, and the more you can reverse engineer it and, and remove the layers of processing that are done before that food gets to you, that eliminates cost and expense. Um, and you then add the value to the product yourself. So like I'll say, yeah. take a bucket of milk and turn it into cheese and sour cream. You've mm. now got two very expensive value-added products, but it probably didn't cost you that much in terms of dollars. Um, if you're cooking for a big family, almost definitely going to have to do that. And that's where you do need to spend more time processing food. And so, so not only like you, Allison, you do a lot of food processing at home. And then with a big family, you're going to take all that food processing you do at home and multiply it by 10. So yeah. it automatically takes more time. So this is where you, you must be willing to train your children and invite them into the kitchen with you when they're young and they think it's fun. Because if you wait until they're 12 and they're yeah. useful, they're not going to want to, and they're not going to think it's fun and their hands won't be as dexterous as if you started mm. them. Like, look at the freaking dinner game made the other night that you posted on Instagram. <laughs> I was like, yeah. whose child does that? Well, Allison's child does, of <laughs> course, you know, but, and look at Rafa when Aaron posted that video of Rafa yeah. cutting with the knife. And I was like, whose kid knows how to handle a knife like that? Well, Aaron's son does, of course he does, you yeah. know? Um, so, but that's not because Aaron waited until he was 12 and old enough to handle a knife. Like he started him now and mm. he modeled it for him and invited him into the experience willingly, not with a heavy sigh, not with groans and <laughs> telling the child what a burden he was, but willingly. Um, so I would definitely say that that, that is going to be the linchpin for cooking with a big family is bringing the children in. Well, what we've done with Gabriel is he's, he wants creative control over things, not just mm -hmm. to do the yeah, he put kiwi in cabbage. I saw that. <laughs> yeah. So we, when when we go to the local cooperative, we let him buy, choose and buy some veggies. Yes. And then he just invents something with my yes. kind of, that you know, so, watching to make sure so it's not wise. going to be a disaster. And so that's why he put kiwi with cabbage. But, yep. you know, he will learn through putting kiwi with cabbage, yes. whether he likes it or whether he doesn't. And I think giving him that creative control has given, has kind of captured his imagination. And we're doing it regularly. He's doing it once yes. a week now. You're back to um, the beginning of the conversation, Alison, where you said we have to do it to learn. You could have told him, yeah. I don't know if those two will pair, but you could have also said, let's try it. And that's another thing that I love about the Charlotte Mason method is she doesn't say, you know, oh, you know, just throw caution to the wind and, and let Gabe mix, you know, put raw octopus on the plate. And then like, what, you know, like there, she does assume that you will provide some input, which you clearly yeah. did, 
but mm. she also wants you to discover because she believes that um, that is truly how our brain learns and yeah, completely. Ex- experiences things, which is obviously true. Um, so I guess I had one last thing, which was the yeah, very final, the very final ring, which on my picture is so small. It's just a dot. That is your yeah. heart. And mm. without your attitude or your heart being in the right place, every system in the world for cooking for a big family, the most organized shelves and the most beautiful meal planning will fail if your attitude is not in the right place. And what do you mean by that? What and, And this, again, this is true with everything. So if you, if you have these beautiful organized shelves and you begrudge your family, the time it takes to get the, the can of beans down and prepare them dinner and, and you slam it onto the table with a with bad attitude and, the, and you tell the children what a burden they are on you and how, you know, you put them in this world and you're going to take them out, then there will be no harmony whatsoever in the home. And, and what's even the point? Better to not have children than to put a child through that kind of misery. Mm. And with like with business, you can have great business systems, but if your attitude and your beliefs are not in the right place, your business will probably fail. And I've seen that so many times, like both my parents are entrepreneurs with both their own businesses. We've talked about this before. Both of Gary's parents are entrepreneurs, both with their own businesses. Gary and I are both entrepreneurs, both with our own businesses. And you have to really, truly believe in your, like your purpose, your business, what it's there for and that it will succeed. Because if you don't, all those great systems, you're going to go, well, we'll try this, but it probably won't work. So uh, here goes nothing. And we've talked about this before, you know, how the why is so important. Yes. You know, why you're doing this in the kitchen, why you want to lose weight, why you want to have a big family, you know, it, it, Getting right. a light, getting to understand what our values are and why we want something is the engine behind everything. The systems fall in place through, mm-hmm. you know, picking things up and and learning. But the the engine that drives this train—that's quite <laughs> what we were talking about—is <laughs> is that passion and belief and why behind it. Totally. The nourishing traditions book is not worth the paper it's printed on if you don't believe in eating that way. And what I mean is when the rubber meets the road, you will say, screw it. I'm going to order a pizza because this is too much. Mm. And the same, the same thing is in your home. If, if you don't believe in why you have, you know, one child, two child, two, two childs. Um, I, I learned grammar. Yes, I did. Or, you know, three children or eight children or 10 children, whatever it is. If you don't believe in that, then when the rubber meets the road, you'll say, this is just too hard. I give up. I'm going to have a mental breakdown. I just can't handle this. It's not worth pursuing other systems. It's not worth trying to make it work. Send them to school, get them out of my, like, it, it just won't be worth it. And I know I don't mean send, send them to school and they, um, like, obviously, Gabriel goes to school. What I mean is like, like get them away from me, is, get them which away you from don't. Me. Yeah. That's not your mentality yeah. with that, obviously. Mm. Um, 
but um, the attitude of just get them out of my space. And, and I think you, you would agree with this, Allison. I, I, uh, Lexi posted something um, and, and I'm just going to list resources in the show notes. I'm not going to say them Thank all here you. because it'll be too long. So I'll just say um, Lexi had posted something on her Instagram, a snippet from a book where she said, the woman said, the term nursing a child, like I said, I saw my mom sitting on the couch nursing a baby, um, encompasses so much more than just breastfeeding a child. And she said, better mm. for a mother to be um, whole. And, and you and I, Allison, were probably both as gung-ho for breastfeeding as anyone you'll ever meet. But better for a mother to be mentally whole and um, able to truly nurse and engage with the child than to disconnected, glazed eyes, staring out the window, not acknowledging the infant at her breast, breastfeeding. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, like your experience yeah. with Gabriel, which people can hear on another episode, um, but your experience with Gabriel and the way you fed him was not less nursing, if you know what I'm saying. Like yeah. the attention was given. So it's the attitude it's not just yeah the, I, I the don't know things. someone someone said how you do something is how you do everything and it it oh, reminds me of way. that you know the way that you nurse your child and the attention you give to that it's the same as the way you prepare the food and put it on the table is the right. same it's that kind of idea of consciously choosing how you want to experience every moment and how you want those who you love to experience every moment rather than allowing something else to come into your life and kind of take over, whether it be kind of baggage or distractions or all the other things that life throws at us. And that that's a hard thing to do. It's something that, you know, is a lifetime's work, but that yeah. will reward so, so much in in what how we experience our life. So I totally agree that the heart, you know, is the is the centre and the rest of it will work much more easily when that's in alignment with with who the individual is you know yeah yeah well I didn't know this Thank was going to turn into a manifesto but that's all I have Alison <laughs> and I'm <laughs> you out. should write the manifesto <laughs> <laughs> I'm done <laughs> okay well I'm gonna all the resources you've got scribbled down on that pad there yeah then, you know then we will put them all in the show notes because I, I know that you you write the most epic show notes. If, if you see epic <laughs> show notes in a, in a podcast, you know, Andrea did those ones. Put all those links in and then those who are listening who want support, want to go and find out anything that you've talked about or want to know more yeah. can go and look there. Um, and I'll, I'll and add thank more. You. Thank you. I'll for add more than what that. I thank, said. Yeah. Thank you for all the wisdom that your mum passed on to you yeah. that you're able to share with everyone on this in this space. You know, it's wonderful. Yeah. Well, I hope I hope I didn't step on any toes and I, I hope that I only encouraged people in what their, you know, choices are that, that feel right to them and um congruent with, you know, the way they feel about the world. So I'm not not um again. I think I already said this like 10 times, but I'm not telling everybody they need to have a big family. I'm saying if you choose to have a big family, I then, support it. Then yeah, this is where you can get support. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. All right, Alison. Well, until next time. Then. Okay. We'll <laughs> sign out then. Thanks right. very much, Andrea. Thank Bye. you. Bye.
Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to continue the conversation. Come find us on Instagram, Andrea's at Farm and Hearth and Allison's at Ancestral underscore Kitchen. Until next time, we both wish you much fun, exploration, and satisfaction in and out of the kitchen. Bye.